Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, for the next few minutes, would you turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Jonah, where we're going to consider a few verses that I think speak directly to our being here and our need to be here to take the Lord's Supper. The book of Jonah, chapter 1. Now, you know, I heard about a group of researchers, as you're turning there, who conducted a survey. They put together several questions and got people from different levels of our society to study them to understand how they think. Different people were brought in. The first person to be brought in was an engineer. And the committee looked at the engineer and they said, tell us the answer to this simple question. What does 2 plus 2 equal? The engineer smiled and said, well, if you're asking in absolute terms, and I assume that you are, 2 plus 2 equals 4. They took notes, thanked the man for his cooperation, and let him go. The second one to come in the room was an architect, a little more creative thinker. And they said, we have a simple question. Two plus two, what does it equal? The architect said, well, now there are several options you have. Okay, two plus two does equal four. However, if you take three and combine it with one, you also have four. If you take two and a half and one and a half, that also equals four. So to get to four, you have several options. They thought, well, that's, that's an interesting answer. And they took notes and thanked him and let him go. The third man to come in was a lawyer. And they said, tell us, what does two plus two equal? Now, this lawyer paused, looked around the room very furtively, said, may I close the door? (laughs) Went and closed the door, and again looked around very suspiciously, leaned into the panel at the table and said, you tell me, what would you like it to equal? (laughs) Now, you know, unfortunately, Lawyers get the brunt of a lot of jokes. I say unfortunately because there's so many good, godly lawyers out there. But they're the brunt of a lot of jokes. And that's because we understand something fundamental. That of all the people in our culture, the ones that should promote and uphold the law, perhaps more than anyone else besides a judge, would be a lawyer. It's the same way with prophets. You would think that the very ones that speak for God ought to be the very ones that listen the most to God. But we have a problem, and his name is Jonah. He's a guy who was a prophet. The Bible calls him that. A spokesperson to give the voice of God to his generation. In his case, Nineveh. He's the one of all people should be open to hear the voice of God and be compliant to obey the voice of God. And we could make as many Jonah jokes 
as lawyer jokes because he didn't fulfill it. The book of Jonah is a short book, but though it's only 48 verses in the entire book, 1,328 words, very short. We're not going to take the whole book tonight because we want to look at just some of the verses in the first chapter. We'll pick up the rest next time we meet. But some of it speaks to what we're doing tonight. You see, if any of you have any problem with God, this is a good book for you to read. If some of you are mad at God, this is a good book for you to read. If others of you are disappointed with God, this is a great book for you to read. If some of you feel like you have failed God and you will never be used by Him again, this is a great, great book for you to look at. And if you happen to be someone who holds a grudge against someone else, if you are the kind of person who is less apt to forgive another person, then I commend to you the book of Jonah. Because Jonah had some of the same problems that I just mentioned a moment ago. Now it opens up with a fish story. And by the way, that's how a lot of people regard the book of Jonah. In literature, it's just a fish story. You know how fish stories go, right? Fish tend to grow every time the story is told. And some people look at the book of Jonah as something that has just been told so often that it's just not real. It's a fish story. I can only imagine if Jonah were married, what it would be like when he got home from all this. And he told his wife, Honey, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. And he would go on to tell the story about how big this fish was. And maybe he even said, You should have seen the one that got away. Except he didn't get caught, or he didn't catch, he got caught by that fish. There is an interesting story, and I, I, I read it in a factual book by somebody that I do trust, although I have suspicions about the accuracy of, of the story. Maybe it was just an illustration in his book. But uh, it seems that there was a girl who was preaching the gospel at a university. But her message was not very deep, and it wasn't very erudite. It wasn't very philosophical. It was just very simple. God sent Jesus to this earth, paid for our sins on the cross. You can be forgiven if you trust Christ. And she was doing this publicly on a campus, open-air preaching. A professor came by, a scientific professor, who paused and listened and thought, Oh, this is good. I can have fun with this gal. She's not very bright. So after she gave her message and students were listening, the professor said, Excuse me. Do you mean to tell me you really believe in the Bible as the Word of God? I do, she said. And do you really believe that God just spoke the world into existence and it instantly was formed? She said, I believe that. Now, she was getting snickers now in the crowd as this guy was leading her on in this questioning. 
Okay, he said, the book of Jonah, you explain to me how any human being can survive in the gullet of a whale or a great fish or whatever the creature was with oxygen deprivation, with the acidic levels of the stomach, the gastric juices of the stomach, in that period of time, darkness, no oxygen exchange, etc., how a person can survive. You mean to tell me you believe that? She goes, I believe it. It's in the Bible, I believe it. He said, how is it possible? Answer those questions. She goes, look, I don't know the answer to your questions, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. (laughs) And the professor thought, I've got her. He goes, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And she said, well, then you can ask him. Now, I've always loved that story because I've always wanted to do that. But for the next few minutes in in these verses, let's let's consider this guy. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, laying down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? And what is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Yeah, right. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Consider the man, Jonah. It it describes a man who was the son of another man named Amittai. Now, some don't see it that way. That's very plain and simple. Some regard the entire book as a myth, sort of like Greek mythology. This, they say, this story is simply a fairy tale so that Hebrew dads and moms, when they tuck their little children into bed at night, can tell this funny little story about God on their level. It's just a myth, no fact at all. Others believe it's not a myth, but they see it as an allegory. They say, Jonah represents the Jewish people, The great fish that swallowed Jonah represents the nation of Babylon, specifically Nebuchadnezzar, who would come in and swallow up the Jewish nation and bring them into captivity. 
Not historical, not true, not a myth, but an allegory. Others believe it's a dream that he had, that he actually bought a ticket, went into the boat, was out to sea. The Bible says he slept at the lowest parts of the ship. And while he was sleeping, he had this wild dream that he got thrown overboard and, and a fish swallowed him up and barfed him on the shore. A weird dream. He had a late night falafel with onions. It generated the stimulus in his brain and he, he had a dream. Now, we have problems with all of those, don't we? Problem number one, it's written in pretty straightforward narrative, like so many other factual stories of the Old Testament. Problem number two, we have sources like Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian who researched stories that were told throughout history and in the Bible. Josephus and others regard this as being factual. But, you know, you could argue that all day long, back and forth. The argument to end all arguments is simply that Jesus Christ himself regarded this as factual. End of story. Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. He used Jonah's story to be a template of his own resurrection from the dead. So, if this book is a lie, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And we know that's not true. So because he regarded it as factual, it's factual. And if you have a problem with the book of Jonah, your problem is deeper than that. You have a problem with Jesus Christ himself. And you're going to have to deal with that. Also, it would be odd for Jesus to use this as an example and mean it figuratively. And here's why. Because in the very same place, Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus talks about Jonah, he also mentions two historical groups. One, the Ninevites, who we know lived historically, and the Queen of Sheba, whom we know lived historically. So it would be odd to sort of combine figurative and literal, wouldn't it? It would be sort of reading like this. For as mythological Jonah was three days and three nights in the mythological fish, so the literal Son of Man will be literally in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. It doesn't make sense. It's meant to be very straightforward and very factual. We know he was a prophet. He was a prophet from a little town called Gath Hefer. Gath Hefer was a village about four miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And here's what's cool. Gath Heifer, where Jonah was born and raised, is in the area of Galilee. I'll tell you why I'm, I'm mentioning that to you. It, it tells me that the Pharisees during the time of Jesus didn't do their homework very well because they addressed the crowd one day and they wanted to dismiss Jesus as not being the Jewish Messiah. And this is what they said. They said, search and look, for no prophet has ever risen out of Galilee. I laugh at that because it shows me those Pharisees never read 2 Kings 14, where Jonah the prophet is mentioned, son of Amittai, who predicted the um, um, reclaiming of part of the kingdom of Israel, which happened. 
So he is from Galilee, and he is called here to preach to the Ninevites. Now, the name Jonah, you know what it means literally? Dove. Now, when you think of a dove, what do you think of? Do you think of somebody or or some creature really mean? Look out, here comes a dove. (laughs) I'm afraid of that dove over there. When you think of a dove, you think of a creature that is gentle, more compliant, and yet the name doesn't fit with the man. Though his name is Dove, Jonah is portrayed here as a very stiff-necked, very stubborn, very hard-hearted individual. Listen, there's no prophet in the entire Old Testament that is more Jewish, more zealous for his country, more nationalistic than Jonah. And yet, no other prophet in the Old Testament is called to a mission of exclusively bringing a message to the enemy of the Jews, the Ninevites. It's just interesting. It's ironic that God chose the one guy that just hated the Ninevites as a passion. And he said one day, Hey, Jonah, have I got a great mission for you, prophet, one who listens to God, dove man. You're going to Nineveh. Now, it's humorous on one hand, and it's encouraging on the other. I find in the Bible a God who loves to take our deficits and turn them into assets. Those things that are weakness, to work on them and change them into our strength. What was his deficit would be changed into an asset. It reminds me of the retirement home that an elderly gentleman walked into one day. There were four elderly women playing bridge at the table. And this single elderly gentleman walked into the retirement home. He was new there. And they all perked up, sat up, and looked. And the first one said, You're new here. He said, Yes, I am. And the second one said, Where were you before this? He said, I've been in San Quentin prison for the last 20 years. The third one said, well, really, what were you in there for? He said, because I murdered my wife. And the fourth one smiled, sat up, and said, oh, so then you're single. (laughs) What most people would see as a deficit, that fourth gal regarded as an asset. Wife's gone, he's single. So that's the man, Jonah. The man had a mission. God said, here's the mission. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. It's a wicked city. Now, honestly, here's where I'm puzzled. You would think that of all of the prophets in the Old Testament, Jonah would be the one guy who'd jump at this. Here's why. Because... He was to bring a message of judgment against Nineveh. 
I mean, I can picture a crowd. If there was a, a room full of prophets and, and God appeared and said, hey, which one of you guys would like the task of going to Nineveh and bringing this message? It's very short. You don't have to prepare a long outline for it. You don't need an introduction and a conclusion. You don't need three or four points. All you have to say is eight words, five in Hebrew. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all you got to say. You'd think Jonah would go, over here, over here, I'm going. I hate him. I'm going to bring that message. That's his mission. We find him not doing that. The man who was sent on a mission made a mistake. Here's the mistake. Verse 3, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, does that not sound a little bit crazy to you? I mean, don't you think that of all of the people in Israel, it would be the prophet that would know you can't run away from God? He would have at least theology 101 down pat to know that it's impossible to run away from the presence of God, right? I mean, already Psalm 139 had been penned by David. Remember Psalm 139? David said, asked, Where can I go from your presence? Where could I flee from your spirit? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed down in Sheol, the depths, behold, you're there. And if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. He would have known that. He should have known that. And so it's odd that he would make this mistake. He arose to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now let me tell you what that means. I don't believe Jonah actually thought he could escape God's presence. But the wording suggests that he's resigning. It means I'm going to flee from standing before God as a prophet. In other words, I quit. I don't want to be a prophet any longer. I'm handing in my ordination, my resignation. I want to be a non-profit organization. (laughs) I quit. I'm not going to do it. He's not the first one that tried. Moses tried to quit. But at least Moses argued with God back and forth until he finally said, you're right, I'll go. And he went to Egypt. Jeremiah, in chapter 20 of that book, had a temporary lapse. He said, I'm not going to speak anymore in the name of God. I'm not going to even mention his name. But, said Jeremiah, his word was like a fire in my bones. I could not keep it in. But Jonah does something different than those two guys. It's as if he went outside with a compass and said, okay, Okay, let's see. Due north is there. That's where God wants me to go. What's the exact opposite direction of where God wants me to go? Oh, that would be Tarshish. I'll go there. Because Nineveh was 500 miles due east from Joppa. Tarshish was 2,000 miles due west past Gibraltar in what we call modern-day Spain. He decided... I quit the ministry, I'm going on a princess cruise, and I'm going to Spain. Trying here to escape the presence of the Lord. 
I once had a dog very similar to Jonah. <laughs> I should have called him Jonah, but we named him Toby. Now, Toby was a Springer Spaniel. <sighs> Toby would do exactly the opposite of what you ask him to do. Come, Toby. He would go. Here, Toby, he'd stay there. Now, this was particularly dangerous when I was in my front yard out here on a little house called Maxine Street, and Toby was playing in the front yard, and I saw a car coming around the corner close to Toby, and I shouldn't have said it, but I said, Toby, come. And Toby looked at me and ran in the other direction as hard as he could, and Toby ran into the car. The car didn't run into him. Toby, the dog, ran into the car. Didn't get killed, but it stunned him. Right then and there, I should have renamed him Jonah. Here's the question. Why? Why do you do it? Why, why did Jonah decide, I'm a prophet, I don't want to be a prophet. God's called me. I don't want to go and do what God's called me to do. I'm going in the opposite direction. Let me offer you a couple explanations. Number one, possibility number one. It was dangerous. Number two, it was difficult. Let's take that one. Let's, let's say, well, he didn't want to go because it's a difficult... I mean, to go 500 miles crossing the desert... To bring a message from a God the people in Nineveh either don't believe in or is unknown to them or they happen to hate the Jews so they're not going to respond favorably. It's very intimidating to go alone on a mission and speak a message from God. I don't know if any of you have ever done any open-air preaching. Do you, know, do you know what that is? It's where you find a line of people like outside of a, a movie theater and you raise your voice loud enough to cover over the din of their voices... You ask for their attention, and right there you start sharing the gospel with them. That can be very intimidating to try that. Imagine doing it in a city like Nineveh. Very intimidating. Very difficult. You, you might say, yeah, that's why I think he didn't go. Well, you'd be wrong because the Bible doesn't say that's why he went. Possibility number two. He didn't want to go because it was dangerous. Now, did you notice in verse 2, he says, Arise, God says, go to Nineveh, that great city, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Did you know that the ancient Ninevites were known for their brutality? Example. A guy by the name of Shalmaneser, the great-grandson of Sennacherib, made a practice of taking captive peoples, ripping their lips off, cutting their hands off, and piling up lips and piling up hands in front of the gates of Nineveh. Brutal. Another guy, a king named Tiglath-Pileser, would cut heads off of the victims and let the skin dry and then pile up skulls at the gates of Nineveh. Brutal. 
you say, well, of course Jonah's not going to go to Nineveh. He, he, wants, to, he wants to get ahead in life. He, he doesn't... He doesn't want to lose his head over Nineveh. He, he's not going to go there and, and say something that's going to end his life. That's crazy. It's too dangerous. We could understand that, but the Bible doesn't say that. There's a third possibility, and here is the reason why. Jonah didn't go to Nineveh because he knew that if he did, his ministry would be successful. You go, well, that doesn't make sense. No, Jonah knew exactly the kind of God he was serving. He knew that God loves everyone and that God is gracious and merciful and will extend mercy to anyone and give a chance even to your worst enemy in life. Jonah doesn't want to see God forgive them. You say, Skip, how do you know that's true? I know that's true because in chapter 3, look at it with me. In verse 10, after he brings the message of judgment, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. And so he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. Here's why. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. What's up with this guy? Now you know why he didn't want to go. He knew that God loves people. He knew that God is merciful. And Jonah wanted to hold on to a grudge and be bitter. He didn't want to see them forgiven by any God. Now that's difficult for us to understand in the New Testament. So let me give you an example that will help you understand a little bit more what it would be like to be in his sandals. It would be similar to a World War II setting where Nazi Germany is very active overseas in Europe. And the word of the Lord, let's say, would come to an Orthodox Jew living in Manhattan saying, Arise! Go over to Germany. Go to Nazi Germany and bring them this message. And, though it's a message of judgment, it might be that if they turn, I'm going to forgive them. You might read, and that rabbi went down into a boat in New York Harbor and went to Hawaii to flee from the presence of the Lord. It would be very similar to that. Okay. Why is it that when God sets before us an opportunity to show people love and forgiveness, mercy, grace, that some of us see it as an inconvenience? It's an opportunity. We see it as a tragedy. Well, I'm not going to let them off the hook. Uh-uh. They're going to pay for that. Yeah, that's good Christian love. That's Jonah. 
Here we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. We stand on the bridge. The symbols of the blood of Christ shed for us so that heaven and earth can meet. We who are recipients of God's love and God's grace and God's favor, how could we refuse to forgive anyone, anyone, for anything they've done to us? It's unfathomable. Because God is so ready to show His love and mercy. So that's Jonah the man. We've seen his mission. We've seen his mistake. You really can't close this setting unless you talk about Jonah's misery. He was a miserable guy. And you know what happened. He was taken aboard the ship. There was a storm that went out to sea. We ended there. But in verse 10, So the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, what have you, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. <laughs> He's honest at least here. I'm running away from God. I'm a prophet. <laughs> and they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. Now you'd think he would say, You know what, guys? You don't have to do anything to me. I need to get my heart right with God. Just clear out a little place on the deck where I can fall prostrate on my knees, on my face before God and ask for his forgiveness. That's all I need. I'm going to ask God's forgiveness right here, right now. Now, Oh, this is a stubborn boy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. He'd rather die than preach. Then I know that the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord. Now they're praying to Jonah's God. I think they're out gunning the prophet. We pray, O Yahweh the covenant name of God of Israel. Please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah. They threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Pretty miserable. But I want to draw your attention as we close, before we pass out the elements, to something more subtle than that. Here's God telling Jonah to go. He says, no, I'm not going to go. It says... But Jonah arose. Now, whenever God gives you a command and then the next sentence ends with but, not a good sign. It means that the person involved is not intent on obeying, but intent on disobeying. And it says, Jonah went down to Joppa, and then he went down to the boat. And as we go and follow the story, he goes down into the sea, And then he goes down into the mouth of a great fish. Four times he goes down, 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 down. Whenever you go your way in disobeying God, 
you're always going down. And, and here's the rub. Whenever you exert your own independence and decide to go your own way apart from the will of God, the world will tell you you're going up. Yeah, Jonah, you, you know, you deserve a vacation. You, you should take that princess cruise. You're going up in life. You're becoming more assertive, upwardly mobile, taking your life into your own hands. What's wrong with that? The world would say, you're getting a promotion. You're going up. You're doing what you want. But not from God's vantage point. Whenever you go your way, you're always going down. It's always a step down. And it says, Jonah paid the fare, paid the money, and went into the boat. It's a very haunting phrase to me. And here's why. Jonah paid the money to go to where? Wanted to go to Tarshish. So he paid the money, however much money it took. It's a long trip. But he never got to Tarshish. He paid the money to go there out of his own pocket, but he never made it there. Now, here's the principle. Whenever you go your way, you will pay for it, and you'll never make it to your desired destination. Hear that again. Whenever you go your way, you'll pay for it, and you'll never make it to your desired destination. But when you go God's way, God will foot the bill, and you will get to His desired destination. Jonah illustrates the first part of that principle. Somebody else in the Bible illustrates the second part of that principle. Her name was Jochebed, Moses' mom. Remember when Moses was born and they were afraid that he was going to get killed, so they put Moses in a little basket and sent him down the Nile River? You know what happened? One of the servants of Pharaoh's daughter found that little basket and that little Hebrew baby and brought the baby to the shore and took it to Pharaoh's daughter and said, Look, here's a baby. And I love it. Pharaoh's daughter gives the command for that girl to go out and find a Hebrew woman, generically speaking, and bring the Hebrew woman here and we'll pay her wages to raise the baby. And they went out and happened to find Moses' mother and said, Hey, we're going to give you a job. We'll pay you well. Government subsidized for you to raise this baby. Deal? Okay. So now the government is paying for Moses' mother to raise Moses. That's good. So whenever you go your way, you'll pay for it and you'll never get to your desired destination. You go God's way, He'll foot the bill. And you'll get to where He wants you to go. So you'll always be going up when you obey, always going down when you disobey. Why are we sharing this for the Lord's Supper? Because we're dealing with a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of forgiveness, a God waiting for someone just in their heart to say, Oh, forgive me, Lord. Okay. I want to draw you in. I want to make you mine. I want to give you another chance. But could it be that some of us stand on the sidelines and we go, Nope, I'm getting another chance in my book. Why forgive them? Well, this is righteous indignation. We have a lot of labels for it. It's unforgiveness. In just a moment, we're going to pass out these elements. If there's something that's not right in your heart between you and God, 
You take the time as we're passing this out and worshiping the Lord to confess that to the Lord, to make it right to the Lord. Maybe you need to make some promise or plan in your heart that you're going to go to a person and ask forgiveness for some known infraction and say, I love you. I forgive you. May God graciously bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us, make me, poor in spirit. Recognizing, Lord, my own failure, my own sin, my own fault. Because you said, for of such is the kingdom of God. And Lord, cause us, cause me to mourn because you said that we'd be comforted. And Lord, I come, we come, hungering and thirsting after righteousness that we might be filled. So we thank you, Lord, for this story that we have read. Thank you that we're dealing with you, a God who doesn't like to let go. He doesn't like to let Ninevites go. He wants to forgive them. doesn't like to let stubborn prophets go, but you chase them down to get their attention. Because you're merciful, because you want to give us a second, third, and 15th chance to be used by you, to have your glory revealed in us. Lord, we pray that as we take these elements, as we stand together tonight on the bridge, the blood of Christ that spans heaven and earth, as we stand, Lord, being recipients of your grace, recipients of your forgiveness, recipients of your mercy, may we be quick to extend that to others who ask for it, who are willing to turn like those in Nineveh. Thank you, Lord, for the family gathered, the songs sung, the atmosphere that's present. May your love flow in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pass these elements out, and we ask you to wait till we all have them, and then we'll take them together. Lord, thank you so much that you love us, and that you came and rescued us, and that your body was broken for us. Let's take the bread. And Lord, we thank you. The Lord, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And God, you freely took upon suffering, God, to bridge that gap between us and you, Lord. Lord, we thank you that, Lord God, we can boldly come before you now, Lord, because of your blood shed for us. So, Lord God, we come with humble hearts and just grateful, Lord, for the the acts you are willing to do for us, God. And we remember that now. Let's take the wine. Lord, you told us in your word to be still and to know that you are God. And in this stillness, in this quietness, we want to give you an opportunity to speak to our hearts about some issues that maybe we have been running around too quickly to even hear. But here we are. You've got our attention. 
Speak to us about those things, Lord. And now, Lord, we're just grateful for your forgiveness, restoration, because we have received so freely. We want to give as freely. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.